Nobody um, does anything until they care. Have you noticed this? Nobody does anything until they care. We have a crisis of inactivity. This is true in our world. This is true in my family. Because my kids just won't shower because they don't care. Can I get amen? Do you know what I'm talking about? When kids are little, it's not as much of an issue because they're always filthy, so you're always hosing them down. Like in the spring especially, they go outside. Our oldest daughter, Sarah, she was crazy. She would literally go outside, sit down in the flower garden, grab a shovel, and just like dig. And I won't say what she was wearing, but you can imagine what a toddler might be wearing when she's digging in the garden. And she would just come in with this huge grin on her face. We'd be like, stop! Don't come in the house! One time she like almost started to cry. Because, no, it's okay, just not in the house. And so we'd get the hose and spray her down. It was freezing, but she loved it. But, I mean, that's about as close as they ever got to a shower. Kids don't want to shower. Why? Because they don't care. So as a result, what does your house smell like? It smells like foot cheese. You know what I'm talking about? You walk in the house, you're like, teenagers live here. I keep saying to my kids, like, you need to have a shower. No, I'm good. No, really, like, you smell like feet. You should maybe have a shower. No, I'm good, Dad, I'm good. No, you're not good. That's what I'm saying. You're like, you smell like the devil. You need to have a shower. No, I'm good. They won't do it until they care. It's kind of like me and holiday weight. Did any of you gain any weight over Easter? I did. I didn't realize it, though, until I turned sideways in the bathroom. I was like, oh, turn back around. <laughs> right? Until you have that kind of come-to-Jesus moment, right? you don't do anything until you care about it. You ever had this happen? You're like, life as usual, life as usual. Stop the press. Woo! Salad and running laps for me, right? We don't do anything until we care. This is also true when it comes to caring for other people. Has this ever happened to you in your life where you really don't do anything until you care? There's a phrase, you don't give a, until something happens to you, and then you're like, whoa, I better do something. Could I see one hand? Has that ever happened to you? Like you had like a cataclysmic moment in your life where all of a sudden your eyes were open to the fact that everybody around you was suffering need all the time. And didn't you find it easier to meet people's needs once you had found yourself needy? We don't do anything until we care. Care first, then do. That's kind of the equation. Care first, then do. Let's define the terms. Care. That's how you pronounce my mother's modern name. It's cur, but it actually comes from care. K-E-R, care. Here's the definition of care. Painstaking or watchful attention. It's the most important part here. Care. Regard coming from desire or esteem. So this whole shower thing just started to change in my family this year. You know why? Because my sons realized there was girls in the world. And they're like, wait a minute. And li- I kid you not. They just come to me. I'm like, um, we're going. Okay, I need to shower first. I need to get a quick shower. Really? Like, who kidnapped my son? Like, you need to shower. Yeah, Dad, I got a shower. And I want to ask them why, but I don't want to embarrass them because I know the truth. So they've realized that there are girls in the world, and so they better clean up their act. They care. Now they'll do. And so my, you should see my hydro bill. It's just crazy. I don't want to be that dad who's like, stop showering, because for 14 years I've been saying, start showering. They're like, Dad, I don't know what to do. Care first, then do. So what should I care about? Well, you should care about what Jesus cares about. Right? If you're one of Jesus' people, you should care about what Jesus cares about. Okay, so what does Jesus care about? Where could I find that? Well, you could uh, take a look in Mark chapter 3. You'd find some things that Jesus cares about. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. 
And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians how to destroy him. Interestingly, I won't preach on this, but the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. The only person they hated more than each other was Jesus. So it's like the one time when they band together because they want to destroy Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they should crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. I'm not preaching on this either, but you notice here how he's vulnerable? It's cool, right? He's the God-man. He doesn't want them to crush him. He's like, I have a boat ready. I also love the fact that Jesus likes boats. That's my kind of Savior. For everyone who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It wasn't his time yet. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, the sons of thunder. That's the best name ever. That's like me and my brother, right? We're the sons of thunder. Literally, you didn't want to come in our room when we were 10. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I'm not preaching on this either, but interesting, of course, that he picks Judas who's going to betray him. Shows that Jesus is on a very big mission. Right? It's bigger than his own discomfort. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Cheeky Jesus answered them. I added the cheeky part. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is such a a, um, straightforward, simple, friendly sermon that I don't even know myself. I feel like I'm losing my edge. Like I came to this this week and I was like, this this is just straight up. Straight up, simple, straightforward. It should come across pretty friendly. I was fairly intense in first service, so I'm going to try and smile as much as possible in this one, because this is just a beautiful chapter with some beautiful truths in it. It breaks into five key sections. Okay, if you look at chapter 3, you can see there's five key sections. And from these five key sections, we find five things that Jesus cares about. 
And my goal this morning is to inspire you to do the same. Makes sense, right? If we can find five things that Jesus cares about, as Jesus' people, I would hope that we would care about the same things. Part one is contained in verses one through six. Part one. We see here that Jesus cares about the one. He cares about the man with the withered hand. Jesus cares about the one. So, teachable point right off the top for you, find one person to care for this week. Just one. Do you ever feel overwhelmed, like there's so much need in the world, I don't know where to start? Do you ever feel that way? Start with one, one person. Find one person this week to care for. Start with one. Well, where will I find them, Todd? You'll find them in your consistent life. How do I know? Well, we see consistency written all through verse 1. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Again. Right? We've been in Mark now for three weeks, and this is basically what the man does. He goes into a synagogue, he preaches the gospel, people with needs come to him, he heals them, and he casts out the demons, because the demons can't handle him. So anytime he comes near, they freak out. They're like, you're the son of God! He's like, be quiet, come out of him. He doesn't like the demons. He tells them, shut up, be quiet. You should uh, take a little Jesus whenever you encounter the powers of evil or the presence of darkness in your life. Just remember that it doesn't freak Jesus out at all. At all. And you have the spirit of Jesus living within you. So understand that when you come face to face with darkness, you can just just deal with it. Be quiet. Go ahead. Go bother someone else. I belong to Jesus. And y'all know what he did to you. Right? That's all he does. Goes into synagogues, preaches, heals the sick, casts out demons. He's consistent. This is all he's doing. So consistency. What's your thing? What do you consistently do? Think about your week. It's likely that you have patterns, like you have established patterns, things that you do all the time. What's your thing? And you'll know this if you have any consistency in your life, that the more consistently you do something, the more you care about it. Do you find that that's the case? The more you do it, the more you care about it. The more you care about it and the more you do it, the better you get at doing it. It's called a feedback loop. You do it consistently... You begin caring about it, you get better at it. What's your thing? So, like, this applies to life, this applies to work, this applies to joining Jesus on his mission and culture to seek and save the lost and to work towards the renewal of all things. Get some consistency in your life, like Jesus. Jesus was consistent. You know the thing that's really consistent in all of these stories about Jesus? Need. Do you notice this so far? Everywhere he goes, he encounters need. Need is consistent. We see this in verse 1. And a man was there with a withered hand, except in the Greek it's even more powerful. And a man was there having been dried the hand. His hand was dried up. And a man was there in the Greek it's exegamenen, which sounds, doesn't that sound evil? It sounds kind of dark, right? And a man was there with a hand that was exegamenen. It had dried up. My question for you is, do you ever feel dry? I know somebody just went, yes, I do, Pastor. But you don't say it. I understand. You ever feel dry? You're like, yeah, I feel dry. Better yet, do you have friends, neighbors, family, coworkers who are dry? I keep thinking of um, my big fat Greek wedding. They're dry, like toast. Seen the movie? It's the Greek family talking about the British family. And it's like, touche, we are kind of dry like toast. Dry like toast. How many friends do you have whose lives are dry like toast of course they would never admit it but lying in their bed alone at night feeling the weight of the world 
You can bet that many of the people you know are exeramenen. They are dried up. Everywhere Jesus goes, he finds need. Have you noticed that you'll never meet a non-needy person? Interesting, right? Like, when have you ever met a non-needy person? Think about your circle of friends. I have friends who I've known for a very long time. They're my most successful friends. And they have carried a need, in fact, two that I can think of, in their life for as long as I've known them. They've walked with that limp for 20 years, and yet to look at them, you'd think that their life was perfect. But I know them, and I love them, and I've walked with them for 20-plus years, and I know that they deal with an ongoing and profound need that they can't solve for themselves. If it's true in my life with my dear friends, it's true in yours, is it not? You never meet a non-needy person. So use this as you filter your interpersonal relationships with everybody, because everybody you encounter is needy. Everybody needs something. So find one person this week and meet their need. Just one person, right? And meet their need, regardless of the cost. Nobody should say amen to that. Because you're like, preacher, if you're serious, that's, that's dangerous ground. Meet their need, regardless of the cost. How do I know it's going to cost something? Well, because of the text. Verse 2, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. After this event, when Jesus heals this man with the dried up hand, the powers of the day begin actively plotting to kill him. There's a cost. They watched him to see if he would do it. There's always a cost. So be prepared. Do you know, even as I'm speaking, that there have been three dozen times in your life when you should have met someone's need and you didn't because the cost freaked you out? Lord, help me. Help me, Jesus. It's downright scary here to see that Jesus knows what the nitpickers are thinking. He knows what the nitpickers are thinking, and it makes him angry and sad. We see this in verse 5. We'll come to it in a moment. I want to point out a couple things here. Jesus gets angry about this. We often criticize anybody who shows the least sign of anger. God the Son here shows anger. This makes him angry. It grieves him. It makes him sad. The point here is this. People's needs ought to always trump our rituals. I would even dare to say that people's needs ought to trump our morals. I would say that people's needs ought to trump our preferences or our biases even if we believe that our bias happens to be correct. Can you identify? Like, have you ever met somebody with a bias who thought their bias was incorrect? Like, never. Right? Every person who has a bias thinks their bias is correct. You should really vote conservative. No, no, no. You should really vote liberal. You should really be a vegan. No, no, no. You should really eat meat. You should really drink coffee. No, no, no. You should really only drink water. You should live in as small a house as possible. No, 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 no. You should live in a big house with lots of room for people. You, and on and on and on. I never met anybody with a bias who didn't think their bias was correct. It's fine to have a bias, but let's not let our bias stop us from meeting people's needs. People's needs should always trump our bias. 
And this is really tough for Christians because Christians have this confusion that we think we're supposed to be good all the time. Like, to be Christian means to be good. Therefore, whenever we see people who aren't good, we're like, you're, you're bad. And people can tell when you think that they're bad. And it's very off-putting. I don't know if you've ever had someone think that you're bad and you know it. It's very off-putting. So, like, look, your morality might be, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, you might be, like, you might be batting, like, a 75%. I don't know. Good for you, you know, with your 75% average. Awesome. I celebrate it. You know, if you move from 75 to 90 on my watch, wicked. Okay, but let's not let our goodness percentile stop us from meeting the needs of needy people. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Amen. People's needs ought to trump our bias. How do I know? Well, because I read verse 5, and I believe it. Jesus looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Do you notice that Jesus invites the man to stretch out his hand? You notice how ridiculous that is? Like, he's like, didn't you notice that it's dried up? Exeminin. I can't. And yet Jesus says, stretch it out. He invites him to do the impossible. He invites the dried up man to participate in the healing process. Don't miss that. And then what happens? He stretched out his hand, and his hand was restored. Good point right here. Sometimes faith requires a little bit of a stretch. Right? I got other passages I can take you to. Because I told you, I'll never tell you to do something crazy unless there's more than just one verse. Okay, sometimes faith requires a bit of a stretch. Um, speak to the rock, don't strike it. God commanding Moses in Numbers 20, verse 8. The previous time that Moses brought water from the rock, he struck it with his staff. God says, no, 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 no. This time, speak to it. And if you know the story, Moses fails. Speak to the rock. God's upping the ante. Sometimes faith requires a bit of a stretch. Test me now in this, saith the Lord, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Malachi 3.10, when God is speaking to his people in the matter of tithes and offerings. You ever been in this situation where you're like, God is speaking to you about giving more, and you're freaked out, so you don't do it. You're like, I can't, Lord. And God says, sometimes faith requires that you stretch. You know what I want you to have a good idea. I want you to march around the city seven times, and then blow the trumpet, and the walls will come down. In the matter of Jericho, in Joshua chapter 6. Can you imagine how ridiculous that was? Like if I stood up at AGM this year and said, you know... Here's what we're going to do to solve our building problem. We're going to just march around the field seven times. We're going to give you all shofars. We're going to blow a trumpet in Zion. Woo! And the Lord's, I get excited about that. The Lord's going to provide an answer to our need. You're like, Todd, let fire him. We need something a little more down to earth. Sometimes faith requires a little bit of a stretch. You know what? I have an idea. You haven't caught any fish? Throw your net on the other side of the boat. But wait, we've been fishing all night with our net on this side. Like, it's not that far from this side to that side. So, like, there's, gonna, there's no fish all night here. We're going to move the net. Like, these boats are maybe, like, seven feet wide. We're going to move the net 15 feet that. We're going to throw it 15 feet. What are you talking about? Sometimes faith requires that you stretch. That's Jesus in the matter of the fish in John 21, 6 to 8. Stretch out your hand. So, here's the question for you this week. Where can you stretch in your faith journey this week. I mean, that's worth the, worth the trip to Acton right there. You know, you could just go home, 
You've been well served at one point. Where can, you, where can you stretch in your faith journey this week? Of course, the operative question being, will you do it? You want to care like Jesus? Invite people to participate and stretch your faith. Because, you know, um, sometimes you need to believe for bigger things like vast crowds. We move now to section 2, contained in verses 7 through 12. And here we see that Jesus cares for the many. In section 1, we see that he cares for the one. Here in section 2, we see that he cares for the many. He withdraws to the sea. A vast multitude is waiting for him. I want you to note here that by this point, Jesus is now a regional draw. People are coming to him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, Judah, Tyre, and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is up north in Lebanon, northeast towards Syria. Idumea is across the Jordan River in the modern country of Jordan. Of course, Jerusalem and Judah are like seven to ten days journey south of where they are in the Galilee. So people are now traveling a week to ten days by foot to come see Jesus. So like to put that in our terms, this is like next week at Grace, we show up for church and there's 600 additional people here who've flown in from Australia and Namibia. We have some French people in the house and some Brits who don't want to be dry toast anymore, so they want some Holy Ghost. And we got some Africans and some people from Brazil and we got some people from India and even a few Aussies. So they've heard that Jesus is in the house and they've come 10 days. Like you could travel this whole world in 10 days. People are traveling a week to ten days to come and see Jesus. He's drawing regionally now. This is God the Son, and he's caring for the many. And don't mistake how many the many are. A few chapters hence, in Mark chapter 6, we'll see Jesus feed the 5,000. And it's 5,000 men, which means men plus their families. So these crowds he's dealing with are 5, 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. First century, Galilee, hot, flies, no sound system. Okay, 15, 20,000 people. Jesus is drawing thousands, and he's drawing them from across different cultures, and all of them have different needs. If we want to care for the many, let's copy Jesus' ministry model. What's his ministry model? Real simple. He preaches, he heals, and he casts out demons. That's it. Preaches, heals, and delivers. I've been in the Gospels since last year in my own personal devotional life, and I've just been so convicted as I've been reading them since last year that this is basically all he does. He shows up somewhere, he preaches, he heals the sick, he casts out demons, you know, rinse, repeat. That's just what he does. That's his ministry model. Jesus' ministry model, hear me, church, is the word with power. So if you want to care for many, preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and then make sure that people encounter the supernatural power of God in a real way that meets their tangible needs. The word with power. That's the key to seeing many embrace Jesus. i got to tell you, I didn't say this in first service. I don't want to talk about it too much. But like when I meet new people who are coming to grace, and there's lots of them, right? They always say to me, yeah, we hear that Jesus is here. We hear the Spirit is here. We hear that you preach the Bible. We hear that the worship is real and the people are nice. That's all I hear. No one says anything else except those four things. You know what that tells me? That tells me that Jesus is at work here and people are beginning to notice. That might be you. You might be new to grace in the last year and a half. Welcome. Nice to see you. Guess what? There are thousands like you whose lives are dry who need to taste and see that the Lord is good. So how do you minister to the many? Well, you give them Jesus. The word with power. And this is not just my job. This is our job. How do I know? Well, because I read verses 13 to 15. What does he do here? Moving into part three. 
He calls to himself those whom he desired. He goes up onto the, probably the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Literally, you can get out of the water, like you're swimming in the Sea of Galilee, and you can today walk to the foothills of the Mount of Beatitudes in three minutes. Like, not even three minutes. It's like a, it's 80 meters from the water to the foothills of the Mount of Beatitudes. The Mount of Beatitudes is really just kind of a hill. So back in those days, the water was actually about 200 feet closer. So it's literally right at the feet of the Mount of Beatitudes. So they get up out of the water. Maybe they went for a swim because Israel's always hot. He goes up on the mountain and he calls to himself those whom he desired. And he appoints them as his apostles, 12 of them. And here we see that Jesus cares about spreading the word about him. So he cares about the one, he cares about the many, and he cares about spreading the word. Even Jesus realizes that the word about him is going to need more than just him to spread it to as many people as possible. He's mission-minded from the outset. He's growth-minded from the outset. He wants to see the story about him communicated and embodied to as many people as possible. Now, how does this apply to me, Todd? Well, he appoints apostles. What do those apostles do? Originally, they go out and preach and teach. They heal the sick and cast out demons. They do exactly what Jesus did. Then after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, what do the apostles do? We read about it in the book of Acts. They go out and they plant churches. They go out and they plant churches. And what do they do when they plant those churches? They appoint overseers and elders. And overseers and elders are given the task of what? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And that same tradition has continued from that day to this. And so you still operate in the same authority that Jesus gave to his apostles, whom they gave to their churches, whom the leaders and overseers and elders in those churches have now taken and equipped you with. Okay, you have that same authority. You are the church. The apostolic authority of the first apostles does not vest just in the Pope in Rome. The Catholics are totally wrong on that. It vests in all of God's people, in all of God's holy Catholic, which means universal, church. And so you have the same authority that God gave to his first apostles. What did Jesus, notably, send them out to do? Verses 14 through 15. So that they, he called them for this reason, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. So this is what Jesus desires. And remember that care is regard coming from desire or esteem. So this is what Jesus desires. He desires that you be with him. Okay, he called his first disciples to him that they might be with him. So my question to you is, how's your relationship with Jesus? Could he use a little work? It's okay. If he could use a little work, do the work. Not easy, but simple. How's your relationship with Jesus? Um, are you preaching the gospel? Okay, it's real important. Do you even know the gospel well enough to be able to preach it? If you don't, write it down on a cue card. Okay, there's the gospel on a cue card. Put it in your pocket and carry it around with you until you have it memorized. Right? Amen? Do you, but many Christians don't even think about this. It. like, um, I don't know the gospel. Do you know the good news about Jesus enough that you can just explain it to somebody? I need to go knowing that you have the authority to set people free from being bound by darkness. Like, it may have been a while since you saw a demon manifest, but that doesn't mean that many of the people in your life are not bound by the powers of darkness. Their lives are dry. They're oppressed. They're depressed. They're tormented. They're miserable. They're alone. They can't sleep at night. They hate their lives. They wish they could change their lives, but they can't. They're trapped. I mean, literally, how many people do you know for whom that's their life? 
Tons of people. That is their life. And you have been sent with the authority by the power of God's Holy Spirit to set them free. So, are you spending time with Jesus? How's your worship? How's your word? How's your prayer life? Do you know the good news well enough to proclaim it? Do you know the story that God sent His Son Jesus to become a man so that He could go to the cross to suffer and die in your place for your sins? Do you know that after He died, He didn't stay dead, but He rose again, defeating the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell forever? Do you know that He then arose, after He arose, He ascended to His Father's right hand, sat down where He is even now, interceding for you? Like, could you explain to somebody what it means that Jesus Himself is your cheering section? Could you explain to them what it means that someday He's going to come back from that throne to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate His kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place? Like, do you understanding your bones what that means is that the thing that drives you to do what you do and could you proclaim and embody that to everybody you knew effortlessly if the answer is no we have some work to do most importantly are you evidently living in such a way that it is absolutely clear to everyone who meets you that god is at work in you like would people look at you and go something weird about that girl something very strange would they sense the Holy Spirit working in you? Would have freaked them out a little bit. They're like, I don't know what's going on there, but there's something happening. That's how you spread the word. When the power of Jesus is at work in your life in an undeniable way. That's why you can't spread the word often if it's not. So you're like, oh, they're just like me, whatever. Just like me, whatever. I'm going to remind you that the stakes are very high. In fact, the stakes are eternal. We see this in verses 20 through 30. This is part four. We see that Jesus cares about his name. Now the elite leaders from Jerusalem are coming to see him because he's freaking them out. His following is getting too big. So they come and check him out, and they're like, watch him work. And they're like, oh, I know what's going on here. Um, <clears throat> he's possessed by the devil. By the power of the devil, he's casting out the devil. He's got Beelzebul living in his heart. That, that's, that's, that's him. The religious elite blaspheme Jesus. And even his own family think he's out of his mind. That's in verse 21. So I want to remind you here, we're coming up to eternal consequences in a second. I want to remind you here that we are not dealing with warm and fuzzy Jesus, okay? This is God the Son made flesh Jesus we're talking about here. Do we recognize who Jesus really is? I'm convinced. I want to say three quarters, but it's not true. Every problem that ails us would bow the knee to Jesus if we would. Right? I, I say it again. Every problem in our life would bow the knee to Jesus if we would. But if you won't, don't expect them to do likewise. Right? It's, it's, we got a worship problem. That's our problem. Okay, make sure you recognize who Jesus really is. Like, he's not your kid brother. He's the king of the universe. He's the king. He's the king. It's only when you don't realize that he's the king that you would dare to persist in calling something good evil. And that's what the religious elite from Jerusalem are doing. They're blaspheming, calling something good evil. And Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He, in fact, calls it the eternal sin. When I read this passage when I was 11, it freaked me right out. I, in fact, ran to my dad. I was like, are you telling me there's an eternal sin? Have I committed it? I kid you not. I asked my dad when I was 11. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is the eternal sin? The eternal sin is the persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus. The eternal sin is the persistent hardening of your heart against the work of the Holy Spirit and against the provision of Christ as Savior. 
When I asked my dad if I'd committed the eternal sin, you know what he read me? He read me what I will read to you this morning. He read me this out of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is open. So my friend, if you hear me talk about the eternal sin and you're worried that you've committed it, that worry means you haven't. The only people who need to worry about the eternal sin are those who don't care. But that's not us. Because we're his family. And worship team, you can join me because I'm done. Okay, we are not those who don't care. How do I know? Because we're his family. And we see how important it is that we're his family in verses 31 through 35 in part 5 as I close. We've seen that Jesus cares for the one. He cares for the many. He cares about the spread of his gospel. He cares about his good name. And here we see that he cares about what you do. He goes home, back to where he's staying in Capernaum. Again, a crowd is gathered, and they say to him, look, your mom and your family are here, and they want to see you. And cheeky, unreasonable Jesus says in verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? Like, what a guy. Who are my mother and my brothers? So who are they? How do you know if you belong to Jesus? Thank God for Mark chapter 3, verse 35. Here's how you know that you belong to Jesus. Verse 35, for receive, you came to church for this. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's why we came to church today, to hear those words preached. Whoever does the will of my Father, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does, Jesus cares about what we do. He cares for the one. He cares for the many. He cares about spreading the word about him. He cares about his good name. And yes, he cares about what you do. So do the same, and our crisis of inactivity will disappear. Care first, then do. Like, um, like Jesus. Jesus.